Hear then the word of the Lord from John 20, verses 24 to 31. But one of the twelve, Thomas, called twin, was not there with them when Jesus came. Remember, he just showed himself to his disciples as resurrected from the grave on that Sunday morning or Sunday night. He showed them. So the other disciples kept telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of nails in his hands and put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. After eight days, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them. He said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Those who believe without seeing are blessed. Verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his, of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Father, that's what we have come for. Who else will we turn to? You have the words of eternal life. These words written in this book are the words of eternal life. And yet, Father, we know that apart from your Son, we can do nothing. Apart from your Spirit, we will be blind and unable to see and believe and know what you want us to see and believe and know. And so we pray for your grace to help us here in our time of need. Help me to preach your word faithfully and may it be received and, and preached in your Spirit's power that you might be glorified and that we might be satisfied in you. And we pray for our friends who are here with us visiting that they too would hear and understand the gospel and that those who don't know yet, who have not yet committed to Christ, that even today, this Sunday, they would repent from their sins and entrust themselves to you. In Jesus' name, we ask all of these things. Amen. Amen. Everyone secretly hopes for a happy ending. Right? It's not so secret that everyone wants to live happily ever after. That's how God made us. It's not just for fairy tales, though that's where we expect it. And when people say, well, you expect that, that's just the fairy tale. Life is not like that. But you know, God made us to want to live happily ever after. All that we do in life, all of our choices, all of our sacrifices, all of our decisions that we make, they're pulsing with this desire that we would live happily ever after. That's why you do what you do. We were made for happiness and not just for a moment. We are made for happiness forever. We are made for eternity. So our problem is that we're not quite sure how to get that happy ending. So some of us get cynical and say it will never happen. For others, we constantly maneuver our lives to get to this happy ending. But deep down, we all hope for this happy ending. But there's a fear. We're scared that we might miss out. That others might get that happy ending. And we could have had it, but we didn't get it. There's a fear that maybe we'll lose a loved one or we'll be stuck in our predicaments that we're in right now or even worse, we might end up in the exact opposite place of where we hope to be. 
Easter is about happy endings. The hope for us as Christians is with Jesus rising from the dead, our hope is a final resurrection when Jesus comes back. That there will be a resurrection of our bodies, we'll get new glorified bodies with no sickness, no pain, no curse on our bodies or our minds or our emotions, no curse in our relationships with other people, no curse in this world. It's not just new bodies we're going to get, we're going to get a new earth, a new heavens and earth. And we will live on this earth renewed, resurrected, so to speak, reborn forever and ever and ever, where there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more sadness. Just life enjoying God with God and life enjoying God through enjoying God's people in the new creation. And not just enjoying it with a stagnant joy, but a joy that is ever increasing. If you could imagine that. Like a balloon that will never pop. Just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So does your joy forever. And I want this. And I know you want this. You don't have to be a Christian to want it. You just have to be human. Made in God's image. But here's the question. How do we get there? How do we get this hope? How do we get this happily ever after? The answer is in verse 27 of our passage this morning. So look at chapter 20, verse 27. You'll see it there. It's the very last sentence of that chapter of that verse. Jesus is talking to Thomas and he says, don't what? Don't doubt, but what? Believe. Now that's not a good translation. A better translation would say, don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. That would be the literal translation. Don't be a doubter, but be a believer. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. That's the main idea. So here's the main idea for us this morning is this. Don't be an unbeliever, but be a believer so that you may enjoy life both now and forever. Okay, stop being an unbeliever and be a believer so that you you might enjoy life now and forever. And that's what Jesus is telling Thomas to do here in this verse. So, how do you become a believer? Just believe, they might say. Wrong. No, not, not just believe. There are actually three steps here or three stages to becoming a believer that we have outlined, at least in this text. And this, Not that you have to follow this exactly, but some of you, if you're where Thomas is, then you need to follow these three steps. Now look at verses 24 and 25. If you're taking notes, you have the handout in front of you, there's fill in the blanks there. Before I get to it, let me just read verse 24. It says, when, but one of the twelve, so here's Jesus. Remember, let's reset the story. Jesus was arrested Thursday night. He was on trial Thursday night in the early hours of the morning, 6 a.m., by, he's basically convicted and charged as guilty, sentenced to death. By 9 o'clock a.m., he, well, he carries his crossbeam 328 yards from the place of judgment to the place of crucifixion. He's hung there, carries it there. 9 o'clock a.m., around 9 a.m., he's hanging on the cross. At noon, sudden supernatural darkness covers the whole land. It's like night. And don't think of night like night here in L.A. County with lots of streetlights. It's night with no streetlights. It's dark. With stars in the sky. Strange. Noon. Darkness. From 12 to 3, about, Jesus is hanging in darkness. He dies at 3 p.m. They thrust a spear into his side to confirm his death, make sure he's dead, and he was. He's buried before sundown that night, Friday night. He's there in the grave Friday as the first day, Saturday as the second day, on the third day, Sunday morning, 
Apparently here, as we read in John 20, he rose from the dead. Mary Magdalene goes, Peter goes, John goes. There's an angel there. They find out he's not there. He's risen. He appears to the disciples in a locked room on Sunday night. That very first day he rose from the dead. Thomas was missing. He wasn't there. They're excited. Of course, they tell Thomas. And that's where we pick up in verse 24. This, that, this is that first Sunday. But one of the twelve, Thomas called twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other, other disciples kept telling him, we have seen the Lord. Now you understand why they would tell him that, right? I mean, this is big news. You had the biggest tragedy and heartbreak of your life completely reversed in three days. And you're super ecstatic. More excited than you've ever been about anything. We've seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. You've you got to believe it. And so what is Thomas' response? I, he wants to believe. Verse 25 says, he says to them, if I don't see the mark of nails in his hands and put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hands into his side, I will never believe. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap for being Doubting Thomas, right? That's his nickname, Doubting Thomas. But there is no evidence that the other disciples believed, except for one. If you look at John 20, verse 9, you see that John believed when he saw the, the, the grave clothes there. He believed. But other disciples, yes, was, was Thomas doubting? Yes. So were the other disciples. They were all doubting until they saw the Lord, most of them. And so even though Thomas gets a bad rap here for being doubting, and he was, I think Thomas teaches us actually a valuable lesson. And this is lesson number one, if you're going to be a believer, not an unbeliever. Don't be gullible. That's lesson number one. I'm actually using Thomas here as a model. Don't be gullible. Seek verification. If you're taking notes, that's the first blank there. Verses 24 and 25. Don't be hoodwinked. Don't be tricked. Now, why did Thomas doubt? Why do people doubt God? It's not all for the same reason. And if you put them all as one reason, you're going to be very ineffective in your evangelism to people. There are different reasons why people doubt. Some people doubt for intellectual reasons. They don't understand the gospel. They don't even know what it is. If you say, do you believe in Jesus? And do you believe the gospel? They'll say, what's the gospel? I don't even know the gospel. So their doubt, are they, are they believing the gospel? No, they're not. But why are they disbelieving? Because they don't know it. That's a content issue. They don't know the content of the gospel message. Some of them know the content of the gospel, but the reason they reject it is because it's incoherent with other things they believe. So maybe they believe in evolution, and you're saying, well, you're just saying God created. I can't believe that because I believe in evolution. Or it could be even more emotional. A child died. A loved one passed away. And so like, I can't believe in that God because it's incoherent with my personal experience. Therefore, I don't believe in that gospel message you're teaching. So it's not the same reason, right? One could be more intellectual evolution or philosophy. Another person could doubt because of personal tragedy. That's not the same thing, and you don't give the same answer to the same person, right? That's a different issue. Other people doubt the truthfulness, the truthfulness of the gospel because of its cost. Experientially, they just know, if I believe the gospel, that might mean I have to give up my girlfriend or my boyfriend, or my name your sin habit, if you're, not that having boyfriend, girlfriend, sin, you know what I mean by that, sexual immorality is what I'm talking about specifically. But it might mean something like, if I believe in the gospel, that means I might have to quit my job, because my job is, you know, my job is unethical. And if I believe in Christ like you're telling me to, I gotta quit my job. 
So there's a cost to it. And so their doubt is not caused by intellectual objections. It's not by personal tragedy. It's because if I believe, that means I have to do certain things, and I don't want to do those things because the cost is too high. Jesus is not worth that. So people doubt for different reasons. Why did Thomas doubt? What was Thomas' reason for doubting here? It wasn't due to ignorance. He knew who Jesus was. It wasn't due to intellectualism. I would say it's probably more of personal experience. Thomas was heartbroken, right? He gave up three years of his life to follow this man, or two years of his life, maybe, to follow this man around, gave up his job, and put all of his hope in this man, and the man dies. He promised to be the king, and that they would all have places in the kingdom. So they're excited about this kingdom, and their king gets executed in the most violent and shameful way in that time. So Thomas was heartbroken. He could understand his cynicism. He's at the point where it just doesn't make sense. How could the king of kings, how could this king actually die on the cross? This doesn't make any sense. He couldn't have rose from the dead. He shouldn't have even died. So his pain and disillusionment ran so deep that even when his best friends are telling him, no, Thomas, we saw him. We saw the nail marks. We saw it. Thomas will not believe unless i put my unless i see it with my own eyes and put my finger in those marks the way you guys saw him i'm not going to believe did you guys believe before you saw him john might sheepishly raise his hand i did you know okay john anyone else besides john no no one else okay you other nine how could you blame me you didn't believe until you saw give me the same you know cut me the same slack you had Now, why am I saying this point is don't be gullible? Here's why I'm saying it. Because a lot of Christians and professing Christians are gullible. Have you heard of Peter Popoff? Does that name ring a bell? Famous televangelist in the the 1980s. He swindled thousands of people and made $4 million a year in the 1980s as a televangelist. He would call people out of their chairs. He would be like, row nine, seat F, stand up. And you'd look at your chair, oh, I'm row nine seat up. You stand up. He says, you have back problems, don't you? And he would call them by name. And say, wait, wait, God's telling me something. God's telling me I have back problems. Okay, you live in West Covina. And he's like naming all these details. God is going to heal you. Come out here. And then he'll like put his hands on them. And then he'll say, hallelujah. And then the guy will fall back and, and do this. And then he'll feel healed. And then people would give. And, and then people were so suspicious of this fakery. That they would interview them. They would get everyone who's caught up and say, tell me that you, he planted you there, right? Come on, he paid you. And every one of them were, were saying, no, I promise. He knew. I was not planted there. He knew, he knew it and I didn't tell him anything. I swear to you, this is real. And, and the reporter, this investigator, could not find anyone to testify against him. And he was like, what is going on? They all spoke, and he, as best he could tell, they were telling the truth. I, I watched some videos of him on YouTube. There was one attender who said to him, you know, they said, do you really believe your friend was healed from this cancer? And she said, I do believe it, because we stand on the word of the Lord. So spiritual, right? Do we want to stand on the word of the Lord? Yes. yes. So she's saying here, I believe he's healed from can- she was healed from cancer, because I stand on the word of the Lord. Well, it turned out, that the reason why uh, the reason why he was able to know these things is he had a hearing aid 
Now, if you're a faith healer, why you have a hearing aid doesn't make too much sense, right? Heal your own ear, right? But he had a hearing aid. But his hearing aid wasn't a hearing aid. It was actually an earpiece. And so what people would do is they would fill out cards of their ailment and their name and address at the front. And then the wife would pay attention to where they sat. And she would say, row six, CF. His name is Robert. He has back pain. And so he'd be like, I'm hearing something from the Lord. I'm hearing something from the Lord. Robert, CF. She'd stand up. And so he'd stand up. And so they were really honestly thinking they were getting healed, where in reality it was this earpiece. And so, and he would only pick those, you know, if you had like, you know, if you couldn't, if you had like no legs, he wasn't going to call on you, right? Because he's not going to do that. He's going to call on people who could who could get an adrenaline rush and feel like their back is healed, but it really wasn't healed. You know, you, you could maybe more intellectually trick them into it for that moment. And so he would call on those people, and he made lots of money doing this. And Christians believed him. Why? Some people are so spiritual in a sense, and they want to be so in tune with God, and they so want to see a miracle that they're willing to believe it with no discernment. They want to believe it happened. So they just believe it. Now, I'm not saying healing doesn't happen. We pray for healing. And God does miraculously heal. Amen? Amen. He does. But there's a difference between that and gullibility. And they would just believe anything. And, and so Thomas here is actually an example that a lot of Christians would do well to hear. Not everyone who's on the, on the TV who says, open your Bible, is actually teaching the Bible. Not everyone on Christian radio that says they're teaching the Bible is teaching the Bible. Not every pastor who stands up in any church, including this church, is necessarily teaching the Bible. Don't be gullible. Check. Look at the scriptures. Think. Pray. Don't just believe because you heard it said with someone who says they're a Christian. If you go to the Christian bookstore, most normal Christian bookstore, sad to say, odds are you're going to read a bad book more than a good book. That's sad. It's a sad reality. And so don't be gullible. That's what Thomas teaches us. Check. Now, the other error would be to be closed-minded, right? Where you're not going to believe anything and you're just going to be a skeptic. And, um, you know, we believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. It is the absolute truth. But we need to be open. We need to be open to learning, right? We can't be closed-minded. Is the Bible, okay, for Christians now, is the Bible God's word? Is it the absolute truth? Yes. Do you believe that? Yes. Is your belief the absolute truth? No. Your belief that this Bible is the absolute truth is not absolute truth, but the Bible is absolute truth. You see the difference? In other words, your belief has to always be tested by the absolute truth. In other words, there has to be a, a degree of open-mindedness for Christians that you could actually be wrong. Do you know that everything you believe isn't right? Do you know that? Some of you are like, Really? I thought, I thought everything I believed was right. I thought I was never wrong. No, every, all of us have wrong beliefs somewhere. And so what do we need to do? Go back to the Bible again and again and again and verify. Unless we perfectly arrive like Jesus, we're still learning. And so let's not be closed-minded, and yet at the same time, let's not be gullible. Now, one more thing here on this first point. Don't forget that you're, account, you're accountable even while you're verifying. So if you're not a Christian... And you're saying, well, okay, PJ, you're telling me to verify, so I need to check first before I know if it's true, right? So I need to figure out whether God is telling the truth or whether Jesus is, the, is true or not. That's right. That's true. But at the same time, at the same time, while you're thinking that, 
You have to understand that God is the ultimate judge, not you. And when you're not believing and when you're checking to verify, when you're checking to verify, God is still in judgment over us. And what, what the Bible teaches is that we're all sinners. All have what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. Therefore, even while you are checking to verify if it's true, you're still in judgment under God. And therefore, you need to not just nonchalantly, okay, PJ, I'm going to verify. I'm going to take 30 years to figure out whether Jesus is God. Well, no, you need to verify right now. Here's what John 3.36 says. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son does not, will not see life. Listen to this. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, it's already what? It's already there. As we investigate whether Jesus is right or wrong, we are already under God's wrath. We are sinners and we are guilty. And therefore, I am encouraging you to investigate, but not without a sense of urgency and not as if you're not under God's judgment. So don't be gullible, but don't be lazy either. Figure it out. If you're not a Christian, here's the message to you. You need to know what the Bible says and you, you need to know the gospel message. I'll say the gospel message in my next point. But you need to know the main message of the Bible. If you might say, well, PJ, there's so many religions out there. How can we know which one is true? There's only two ways you could know it's true. Which one is true? Number one, you need to know every single religion and every single view out there. With, you need to know every view perfectly. Anyone going to be able to do that? No. Right? Just, just try the internet, right? which is just growing in information every single day. You're not going to know it all. So number one, if you want to know if it's true, you could know everything. Or you could find out from someone who knows everything. And who knows everything? God does. So find out what God says. And then you could know whether it's true or not. Christians, like I said, let's be discerning. And as a church, what does this mean as a church? As a church, we must test everything. We're calling people to obey the Bible, right? We're calling people to trust Jesus, right? As a church. If we are doing that, we need to keep... Studying the Bible ourselves and testing everything we say. Okay, so if you're going to be a true believer and not an unbeliever, you need to not be gullible. That's number one. Number two, meet Jesus. Meet Jesus. That's what Thomas does here. You need to not just say, okay, I'm open now, but you need to actually meet Jesus. Look at verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace to you. This time Thomas is here. And here's Jesus. And what does he say in verse 27? He looks right at Thomas. Man, this is so good. He looks straight at Thomas and he says, put your finger here. And observe my hands. Thomas, come here. Reach out your hand. Put it in my side right here. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. Jesus reveals himself to Thomas. And then he calls him from unbelief to belief, from being an unbeliever to being a believer. Now, you might ask the question, wait, why do you keep saying that Thomas is an unbeliever? Isn't he saved? Are we saying that Thomas is not yet, was not yet saved? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that that question is beside the point. Jesus calls him from being an unbeliever to a believer. That's what the text says. I'm just quoting what Jesus says. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. If you say, well, he was already a believer. Look at John eleven sixteen, And in John eleven sixteen, you certainly see Thomas's faith. Remember when Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead? 
They're going to, to the south again. And Thomas says, man, if we go there, they're going to kill Jesus. And he says, well, let's go with him. We might as well die with him. I'm all in. So Thomas trusted in Jesus. But even so, if you say you trust in Jesus, and in the end of your life, or some point later in your life, you end up rejecting Jesus, and you reject that he rose from the dead, you stop believing that, and you refuse to believe that, are you a Christian? No. no. Now, does that mean you lose your salvation? No. Okay, some of you are getting confused. I want to make sure I'm very clear here. You cannot lose your salvation. But if you reject the resurrection, and you professed it one time before, guess what? Maybe you were never really Saved. saved. If you are a believer in 1989 when I became a Christian, then you still need to be believing today. Amen. You're not just believing one time and then you live however you want. That's not Christianity. That's not true conversion. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. New birth changes your life. It doesn't make you a Christian for one season of your life. You profess faith and then you go living however you want and then you still get to say you're a Christian. Jesus is not saying believe once. He's saying be a believer, which means it's a characteristic of your life. Belief characterizes you. It's not a historical moment for you. Thomas, don't be an unbeliever. Be a believer. Trust me. Keep trusting me. Jesus comes to him in glorified form. He declares peace. And now Thomas sees him and he's called to believe in him. Now in verse 29, it says, Thomas believed because he what? Look at verse 29. Because he saw him. But then Jesus says, those who believe without seeing are blessed. So people could believe with seeing Jesus. They could also believe without seeing Jesus. And this is good news for us. Why? Because we haven't seen him. Right? Right? You're saying, okay, PJ, this is 33 AD. Jesus comes. This is not 33 AD today. How can I see Jesus? You're telling me to go meet Jesus. How can I meet Jesus? Isn't he in heaven according to John 20, verse 17? He ascended back to his father in heaven. So how can I see Jesus? Do I need to have a miracle or a dream? Or does God have to stop me on the road to show me that he's alive? That Jesus is alive? No, not necessarily. People can believe with seeing, as Thomas did, but people can also believe without seeing. Now, why do we have to believe without seeing? Because Jesus ascended to heaven. That's part of his design. If he did not ascend to heaven, he would not have sent who to live in us? The Holy Spirit. He had to ascend to heaven. And it's actually better that he did. Because now as we preach the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, people can meet Jesus through the hearing of the word, right? Faith comes by what? Hearing, hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Romans ten seventeen. If you want to meet Jesus... You have everything you need here to meet Jesus. Amen. Read the Bible. Hear the Bible. Understand what the Bible is saying about who Jesus is. The Son of God. The Son of Man. Fully God. Fully man. Without sin. Who died on the cross for sins and rose from the dead. That is Jesus. Hear Him. See Him as you read about Him. You can meet Jesus just like Thomas did. And you need to meet Jesus if you're going to have eternal life. You know, 1 Peter 1, if you're a Christian, let me just turn to 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. Listen to this. It says this. You love him, though you have not seen him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you love Jesus, Christians? Do you believe in him? 
Have you received salvation for your souls? Have you seen him? No. But you believe because you've met him. And that's what I'm saying. If you're going to move from unbeliever to believer, you need to meet Jesus as he's preached, as, he, as you hear him, as you read of him in the text. I was talking to a brother who was reading the book of Matthew today. Or not today. He told me today he read the book of Matthew and got saved. Met Jesus reading Matthew. You could do that. My wife met Jesus reading First Peter. Some meet Jesus as he's being, as, as someone is gospelizing. The point is, you need to be confronted with Jesus personally through the word. And God is still revealing himself. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might say, okay, who did Jesus show himself to? How many disciples here? Eleven, right? He showed himself to the eleven. It seems like he only showed himself to believers. Actually, if you read the New Testament, he only showed himself to believers. So if you're not a Christian, you're saying, ah, how convenient, right? How convenient. He only shows himself to believers. Of course they're going to believe. Because he showed himself to them, why doesn't he show himself to unbelievers, to skeptics? Well, think about that for a second. If Jesus had to ascend to heaven to bring his Holy Spirit down, and if you're saying Jesus has to show himself physically to every non-believer before they become a believer, how many times will Jesus have to show himself? All the time, right? He doesn't get, get to go back to heaven. You don't get to bring the Holy Spirit down. Because you've got to show yourself to everyone so that they get a fair shot at believing. That's not the truth, though. That's the alternative, but that's not the truth. Here's the truth. The truth is that if you, saw, if you don't believe in Jesus as you read and hear the scriptures, you wouldn't believe in him if, even if you saw him. That's the truth. Amen. Now, why am I saying that? The Sanhedrin, who killed Jesus, they knew Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. There was no doubt. You know, like when we, read the, we see these televangelists, there's a little bit of doubt in our mind. With Jesus, there was no doubt. Even from his enemies who wanted to kill him, they didn't doubt that it was true. They knew it was true. And yet they wanted to kill him. Just show me a miracle, Jesus, then I'll believe in you, right? This man raised the man who was rotting in the grave for four days. From the dead. And they believed it. And they still didn't trust him. Miracles don't prove it to people who don't want to believe. Even in Luke 16. You might remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Right? Where the rich man is there in in Hades. And and Lazarus is at at Abraham's side. And he says, he's saying, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus back up to my relatives. Let them know about, about this so that they could believe and not come here. And what does Abraham say? He says this, if someone from the, or he says, they have Moses and the prophets and they should listen to them. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they'll repent. And then Abraham says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Why doesn't Jesus just show himself to everyone? Because they wouldn't believe anyways. That's not the point. The point is that it happened. He really rose from the dead. And you need to meet him, and you need to believe that he rose from the dead. Jesus calls you, not just Thomas, but you, Christian and non-Christian. He's calling you this morning to be a believer right now and not an unbeliever. So if you're not a Christian, what is God telling you to do? Meet Jesus. Understand who he is and what he's done. Jesus is the Son of God who came. Now here's the gospel. So you're saying, what's the main message of Christianity? If you don't pay attention to anything else today... Listen right here for these next three minutes. Here's the gospel. The gospel is this, or the next minute. God made the world, and God made you. He made everyone. Whether we like it or not, he's our creator. 
That means we're accountable to him. And God made everything very good. But we spoiled creation with our sin, with our selfishness, with our self-centeredness. And God will not tolerate that because he's a righteous God. He's a loving God and he loves those that we hurt. And he knows that if there's a crime, if someone rapes one of your family members or murders one of your family members, that it's not just good enough to say, oh, that's okay, just don't do it again. He understands that there's justice that needs to be served because he's a just God. The problem is we're all sinners. So his justice means we'll all be condemned to hell. That's not good news. Here's the good news. God sent Jesus, his son, to become a full human, fully man, fully God. He lives a life we should have lived. Jesus hangs on the cross in darkness, not just a supernatural miracle, but the darkness of God's judgment on Jesus. He hangs on the cross and dies for sinners. And he says, it is finished. He pays it all. He dies. He's buried on that Friday. He rises on Sunday, defeating Satan, sin, and death, so that everyone who believes in Jesus and turns from their sin and turns from their own righteousness and religion will trust in him. I hope you heard me. I'm not just saying you repent from your sins. You repent from your sins. You also repent from your religiosity. I'm not calling you to get religious. I'm not calling you to get churchy. I'm calling you to trust in Jesus and not in your churchianity. God doesn't like you more because you came here this Sunday. God only likes us because we're in Christ. We have his favor in Christ. Apart from him, we are deep in our sin. Now, he loves us as image bearers and he does love non-Christians and Christians. But that's despite ourselves, not because of how beautiful we are. And so, if you're not a Christian, God is calling you this morning to stop unbelieving and believe. Trust in Jesus. If you're a Christian, this is our mission. We introduce people to Jesus. That's the mission of our church. Our mission isn't to keep this building going. Our mission isn't to get a big budget. Our mission isn't to fill these seats just to fill seats. Our mission is to introduce people to Jesus. Because he gives life and people need to meet Jesus. So to be a true believer, you need to not be gullible, number one. Number two, you need to meet Jesus as, as he's presented in Scripture. Know the gospel that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And lastly, I already said it, but let me say it again. These are just one last verse, verse 28. What does Thomas say when he sees Jesus? My Lord and my what? My God. Point number three, confess Jesus. Don't be gullible. Meet Jesus. Confess Jesus. What does he confess about Jesus here? My Lord. What does Lord mean? Master. At least on the surface, it means master. That Jesus is above you and you're below him. You're subservient to him. You are the servant. He is the master. That's what it means. That we submit our lives to Jesus. Don't say you believe in Jesus and you don't submit your life to him. That's not true. Don't call him Lord and then you be the Lord of your own life. That's a lie. Don't call him Lord and only pick certain verses of the Bible to obey and not others. Don't call him Lord and they get rebuked from one of your brothers and sisters and not repent and defend yourself and, and justify yourself. Don't call him Lord if you're not going to be humbly coming to him and repenting from sins when confronted. If he is Lord, then we need to submit ourselves to him. And that's what Thomas said, my Lord. Now, it's not just that he's our master. In the, in the Old Testament Greek translation... The word for Lord is kurios, and that's the word here. And basically, if he's calling him Lord, he's calling him God. Because that Greek word in the Old Testament is used for the name Yahweh, which is God's personal name. 
Jesus is not just Lord in that sense. He's actually God. Amen. And that's why you have that verse there too. Look at verse 28. My Lord and my what? My God. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses who don't believe Jesus is God, you know, there's two explanations. One is a little bit more long. Uh, but the other option is that Thomas almost kind of cursed here in a sense. Like he saw Jesus and was so staggered. And he's like, my Lord and my God. You know, oh my God. As if that's what Thomas was doing here. That's not what Thomas is doing. It's very clear. My Lord, my God, he bows himself before Jesus. And Jesus is God, isn't he? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. 1, 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We learned on Friday night in our Good Friday service, we had a great time here, and I know some of you couldn't make it for different reasons, and that's okay if God sent you elsewhere. But we talked about Zechariah 12.10, quoted in John 19.37, where it says, they will look on me whom they've pierced, talking about Jesus being pierced on the cross. But that's quoting Zechariah 12.10. And you know who's the one talking in Zechariah 12.10? God. God is saying they will look on me whom they've pierced. In other words, Jesus is not just a man, though he is a man. He's also God. Which means you owe him your allegiance. Amen. You might not be giving it to him. And maybe it's because you're still doubting. But you owe him your allegiance. I do too. He's our creator. And if you're not sure you want to believe in him yet, here's the least I want you to do. Ask questions. Seek answers. Don't be content to wonder in your mind, huh, PJ said something this morning, and I'm kind of wondering about it, but oh well. And you let the question sail in your mind and sail out. And you don't ever find an answer. That's what Satan wants for you. To have lots of good questions that might lead you to the truth, but you never track them down and you end up going to hell for the sins that we all have committed and we all deserve hell. Don't be content with your questions not being asked. Ask questions. Seek the Lord. And when you see him as he is, recognize that he's not just... Thomas is not just saying he's Lord and God. He says, my Lord and my God. It's personal. Is Jesus your personal Lord? And is he your personal God? Do you trust him? That doesn't mean he's not public, publicly Lord and God. He is. But have you embraced him personally? Have you entrusted yourself to him? If you're not a Christian, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus as your Lord, as your God, and as your treasure. Why do I say your treasure? Jesus said in John 6, 35, He who comes to me, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. That's a good guess, but it'll never hunger. Right? He who believes in me will never thirst. In other words, Jesus just doesn't want you to confess him. He wants you to be satisfied in him as your treasure. Some of us want Jesus because we want to get out of jail free card, get out of hell free card. But we don't want him to be our treasure. We want him to save us while we treasure our jobs more than him or treasure money more than him or treasure our families more than him or treasure our church more than him or treasure our friends more than him or treasure our health more than him. That's not repentance and faith. Jesus is ultimate even over all those other things you treasure if he will be your Lord and if he will be your God. Realize that everyone confesses someone as Lord and someone as God. Everyone has an ultimate treasure. And guess what? Your money so some of you might say, I don't want Jesus to be my Lord and my God. That's a straitjacket. I don't want him telling me what to do. I want to be free. Guess what? Nobody's free. You might be a slave of your money instead. Or a slave of your friends. Or the people, the person you're trying to please. But guess what? That other treasure you have will not die for your sins and take God's condemnation that we all deserve. That treasure won't save you. There's only one master who could actually save you. 
And if, if you're not a Christian, let me just encourage you. Ask a Christian what it's like to live following Jesus. They won't say it's easy. Don't Christians, don't say it's easy because it's not. But at the same time, they'll tell you that there's no greater joy. Right? There's no greater joy than knowing Jesus. And enjoying Him with the ups and downs of life as our Lord and our God. So Christians, let's submit to God and enjoy Him. As a church family, let's worship Him with great joy and gladness in spirit and in truth. Let's believe in Him. Let's be believers but and not unbelievers. Now when I say believers, let me just make it one last practical thing and then we'll, we'll draw it to a close. Think about this. The disciples were told three times by Jesus that He would die and rise. Okay? Three times at least He told them, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise in Jerusalem. It happened on that Friday in Jerusalem. What should they have been doing? Yes! He's dead. Step one is accomplished. Here he comes. You know, three more days and he's coming up. You know, they're telling their non-Christian friends, just watch. Three days, wait till Sunday. Here it comes. He's coming. You know, they're at, they got popcorn. They're at the, the tomb, right? There's a soldier there guarding it. They got their popcorn. They're like, watch this. Here he comes. He said it. He's going to do it. That's belief, right? Did they believe? No. They were grieving. They were heartbroken as he accomplished their salvation. They were heartbroken as he fulfilled what he predicted. They did not believe in the middle of their tragedy. They could not see that it was actually a treasure. How does that apply to us Christians? Are you in tough times right now? Are you under trial? Do you find yourself rejoicing and saying, Oh, this is it. God is doing what he promised, that that every trial will work for my good. He promised that that he's going to build up my faith. So to consider my trials great joy because it builds my endurance. And when endurance has its perfect and complete work, James 1, 2 to 4, it will, it will make me mature and complete, lacking nothing. Jesus is sanctifying me. He's growing me. Praise God for this trial. Is that what we do? No. No, we don't do that. We complain. We question God. We doubt. Unless I see the hands and the side, I will not believe that my trial is good right now. And Jesus says to us, don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. If I rose from the dead, I will make good on all my promises. Everything that you undergo will work together for your good, even your death, even your suffering. And I will take you to rise again, and we will reign on this new earth, and you will look back on these trials, and you will know that I was good. Amen. I was good. I rose from the dead. That's my proof. That's my down payment proof. And in the end, when I call all of you to rise from the dead, those who trust in me, you will see that every hardship you've ever undergone was not only good, it was worth it. And if you could rewrite, if you could go back again, you wouldn't change it now that you get it. But the key is to believe it when we don't get it yet, right? The key is to believe it now before the resurrection. That's what they should have done. And that's what we should be doing as, as Christians as well. So what is Jesus telling us to do? Repent and trust in him and stop trusting ourselves. If we do, look, what does John 20 verse 31 say? We will have what? These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have what? Eternal life in his name. Happily ever after. And if you don't believe, God's wrath remains on you. But you don't have to end. You don't have to stay that way. God will take away all your judgment right now if you will turn to him and entrust yourself to Jesus. Don't be an unbeliever. Be a truster. Be a believer. Father, take these words and hide it in our hearts. Help us to be a believer. 
and not an unbeliever. Not just by saying we were saved one day, but right now. Help us to keep believing. Where faith and trust and joy and hope characterizes our lives even in suffering and pain. That doesn't mean it's easy, Lord. We know you're not wiping away our tears yet. There will be many tears shed in this church. There are, there have been. For the many years and decades, there have been many tears shed. And there will be more. But we know that you will wipe away every tear. Because Jesus rose from the dead. We pray that we would keep trusting you as church family, as Christians. We pray for our non-Christian friends that even this morning, they would repent from their sins and entrust their lives to Jesus as their Lord, as their God, as their Savior, and as their treasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.